Hello everyone, welcome back to The Atomic Hobo. My name's Julie McDowell and this week I'm bringing you a special extended episode. I've chosen to do a special episode this week because I'm really quite glad and chirpy. And that's because I set up a Patreon account last week and at the time of recording this, 18 kind people have signed up to support this podcast. So this special episode is a way of saying thank you. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a kind of crowdfunding site for people who do creative work. You can support your favourite artist or podcaster or video games experts, YouTubers, etc. by giving them a donation each month and in return you get some rewards. Well, I set one up last week and I was almost embarrassed doing it. I was convinced that no one would support me and I'd be stuck with a big fat zero on my page. But um, as I say, 18 kind people have, and so I'm really grateful. I'm really relieved also. (laughs) So here's a big extended episode as a thank you to everyone who supports this podcast, either by throwing some money or by listening, sharing it on social media, etc. If you want to support the podcast on Patreon, you can find it at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can throw in as little as a pound a month or go a bit higher for some cool nuclear rewards. Here's an extended episode, and it's all about Chernobyl. Now, you might think this is slightly off-topic, because this podcast is about how we prepared for nuclear war. But the Chernobyl disaster is relevant, because it contributed, arguably, towards the fall of the Soviet Union, and so indirectly helped to bring about the end of the Cold War and therefore the lessening of the nuclear threat. So I'll tell you my own story of how I went to Chernobyl. I'll take you on a wander through the cracked streets and the empty villages. I'll tell you what it's like to have lunch in Chernobyl's cafe, which was a strange experience. And then we'll move on to looking at how Chernobyl helped bring down the Soviet Union. But if you have any questions left at the end, then of course you're free to ask me on Twitter. I'm at Julie A. McDowell. Or get me on Facebook, my page is called Nuclear Britain. You can also contact me through my website, juliemcdevil.com, and I'll do my best to answer. Now, it's obvious why I wanted to visit Chernobyl. As you know from this podcast, I'm obsessed with the prospect of nuclear war. And the Chernobyl disaster gave the world a hint of what that would be like. Uh, The deaths, the radiation sickness, the contaminated land, the evacuations, the ghost towns and villages. It was a nuclear horror within my lifetime and right in the heart of Europe. And it was one whose effects spread outwards and outwards, just like the fallout, shook the entire Soviet Union and of course helped bring about its collapse. So, of course, I wanted to go. I felt guilty but wanted to go. I didn't want to be like some kind of gopping tourist. I'm aware that there are a lot of um, computer games and horror films that are set in Chernobyl. And to me, that always seems quite distasteful. And so I didn't want to be a gopper who's there because they've seen some scary film or they're hooked on some computer game. I didn't want to be one of those people who clambers all over the ruined buildings uh, just so they can get a good shot for Instagram. Maybe I sound like a snob or a bit precious by saying that, but I wanted to be respectful when I went. And um, I tried to be, I hope I was, but nonetheless I still felt guilty. I felt very privileged, very Western, I suppose you would say. I I did feel like a gopping tourist. I took pictures, um, I tweeted them, I put them on Facebook. 
Is it possible to do all that and still be respectful of the place? I hope so. So I, I wanted to go, but I had that thought hanging over me. How do I go there without being a bit tasteless, a bit like a disaster tourist? And also, um, as I discussed in last week's podcast, I've had issues in the past with my mental health. I've suffered severe anxiety and panic attacks. I'm a very nervous person. I jump at the slightest noise. Um, David, my fiancé, always tells the story of how he was in the bedroom once tidying up and he had a, a Lego figure, a wee Star Wars Lego man, on his bedside table. And when he was tidying up, he knocked it off the table and it landed on the floor and clattered against a glass and I was two rooms away in the living room, and yet when I heard this tiny Lego figure clatter against the glass, I screamed. I got such a fright. So David, when I said I want to go to Chernobyl, David quite logically said, are you sure you'll be okay coping with that? Remember, you're very nervous. You're the type of person who screams when a Star Wars Lego figure falls into a cup. So are you sure you can cope with being in a place which is so... I don't know, different, uh, distant, uh, quite forbidding. So David said, with total honesty, I don't think you'll be able to handle Chernobyl. Too far away, too intimidating, too alien. And also, of course, Ukraine, the east of Ukraine um, is a war zone currently, as we know. But my um, obsession with this topic and my desire to see Chernobyl, that won the day. David and I packed our bags and we booked a flight to Kiev. Uh, and in fact, when we got there and we had a day exploring Kiev, there were signs that the country was indeed at war, which of course wasn't very good for my nerves. There were red signs painted on walls in the city centre of Kiev. Um, red signs saying Ukrita, which means shelter. And there was an arrow, a red arrow. And these signs were pointing the population towards their nearest bomb shelter. And these signs were newly painted. You know, it's not a remnant from the Cold War. So wandering around Kiev, I saw these signs everywhere and even the signs look quite scary. They look from a distance like blood splashes on the wall. Um, I took a few pictures of them. I'll put those on Twitter if you want to see them. So yeah, Kiev, uh, Ukraine, it did seem quite a forbidding destination, but I was determined to go, of course. My curiosity won the day. And when we got to Kiev, it seemed absolutely fine. The journey was easy. We went with BA, easy peasy, of course. And I was reminded that Ukraine isn't, you know, still lost in some Soviet mist. When we were driving out to Chernobyl the next day, my guide Igor reminded me that Kiev had recently hosted the Eurovision Song Contest. So the city was filled with, you know, cosmopolitan people from all over Europe having a great time. Nothing forbidding or intimidating about the place. Um, And Igor's biggest memory of that influx of musical media types was, um, as he said... Hair of many colours. That's what he remembered. He took quite a few of them out on day trips to Chernobyl. um, And yes, that was his biggest memory of all these Eurovision types. Hair of many colours. So there was nothing to be afraid of in a city which is so beautiful and so open now, it seems, to the West. And which had hosted Eurovision and people with hair of many colours. When we landed at the airport, there was a foolproof system to make sure the tourists got put into an official taxi. We were safely delivered to a nice, bland, international hotel. Uh, We stood at the Ibis. The hotel receptionist dished out some sweets and asked us to leave a TripAdvisor review. Outside our hotel um, on Taras Shevchenko Boulevard, there was a new glassy Hilton trimmed with twinkling fairy lights. And we passed by trendy restaurants with names like... um, Sorry, vegans. (laughs) Now, you don't get the Hilton and the, the hipsters if you're a 
grim, forbidding old Soviet city in turmoil, do you? So everything seemed normal. There was no reason to fear Kiev. There was no reason to feel it was going to be intimidating. Crossing the road was intimidating. My God, that was quite scary. But of course, we soon realised that's why the roads in Kiev, the main roads, there are um, underpasses under most of the roads, so you don't need to dodge across the traffic. You can um, scoot down into one of the underpasses, most of which are lined with wee tiny shops and stalls. So traffic was the main thing to fear in Kiev, not, um, not any Russian air raids or any war in the east. Kiev seemed... Perfectly lovely, perfectly normal. Even on the streets, you'll see lots of army uniforms. And again, that caused me a bit of anxiety. You know, what's this all about? But again, Igor, the next day, he explained, these are just the kids trying to be trendy. He said uh, the kids in Kiev, teenagers, they love all their camel gear. They get it at a discount. I even asked him, Igor, what about these bomb shelter signs then? Um, Doesn't that prove that people are nervous of Russia or that they're expecting something from the East? Uh, But Igor said, and this is a quote, um, most people in Ukraine, they do not care. They do not worry about Russia. They worry about food and about jobs. Igor told me that his wife and mother-in-law are both Russian, but they've never experienced any hostility in Ukraine. And yet they were told by Russian friends, don't go, you will be killed. So as far as Igor is concerned, the Russians seem far more concerned with Ukraine than vice versa. So Kiev just seemed to be getting on with things. Getting on with being a beautiful, often shabby, but very imposing city. Incredible architecture done up in shades of turquoise and peach and gold. There were, of course, tiny sprinkles of westernisation. McDonald's here, a Hilton there. And in uh, Maidan Square, there were EU flags flying, even though, of course, Ukraine isn't a member of the EU. They were very clearly showing that they're pointing west these days. So if you have any concerns about going to Kiev or Ukraine because of what you see on the news about the war in the east, my experience anyway is that there was no problem with Kiev. There was nothing scary, nothing intimidating, nothing alien about it. Air pollution was a bit... So my message is don't fear Kiev Look left and right a few times before you cross the road. Keep your wits about you, of course, but that applies to any city. If you want to visit Chernobyl and the conflict in Ukraine is putting you off, my experience is it doesn't touch Kiev. So let's look at the practicalities of visiting Chernobyl. The first thing to say is that you cannot go alone. It's illegal to enter Chernobyl on your own. You must go with a tour guide. And the tour guide uh, sets up all your insurance, all the formalities for you, gets you through the checkpoint, etc. You cannot go on your own if you do, you're breaking the law. And there are people in the zone in Chernobyl who are there for that purpose to catch illegal uh, tourists who are known as stalkers. They'll catch you. Um, I don't know what they do with you. I assume they drag you off to some police station. It won't be pleasant. Don't do it. Go with a tour guide. Now, if you don't like the idea of going in a crowd, you can pay extra for a private tour. Um, I went with the tour guide Solo East. Uh, they were the guys who took the Top Gear crowd into Chernobyl. Jeremy Clarkson, etc. did a special once on Chernobyl and they went with Solo East. So I thought, if it's good enough for Clarkson, it's good enough for me. So we went with Solo East and we paid a bit extra to have a private tour. So it was just Igor, the guide, me and David's. And so we weren't packed into a tour bus with a crowd of other people. Igor took us in his car. And uh, if you especially don't like crowds, then do what I do. Go in December. We went in December, I think it was on a Tuesday. So midweek December, of course, isn't exactly peak tourist season, especially not in Kiev when it's obviously the height of winter. So if you go on a December Tuesday and pay for a private tour, you might have the entire exclusion zone to yourself 
And that is what I was lucky enough to have, just by sheer chance, sheer good fortune. There were no other tours with any other tour company on that day. So, of course, there were people working in the zone. But in terms of tourists or visitors, as they're known, it was only me and David's. And that was spectacular. I'm so lucky, so glad that happened. Another benefit of going in winter is that the trees will be bare. Uh, The Chernobyl zone has been, now that there's no human interference or minimal human interference, nature has just rampaged across the zone, so trees have sprung up everywhere, even through the cracks in the pavements. Um, They're even growing out of um, gutters and and roofs, etc. If you go in summer, those trees, as photographs will show, are in full bloom or in full leaf. But if you go in winter, the trees are bare, so you can see uh, the the buildings behind them. You've got a clear view. So I recommend going midweek December, and if you can afford it, paying for a private tour. So Igor picked us up at, his, at our hotel, drove us to Chernobyl, which is a two-hour drive from Kiev. The drive seems to be mainly along one huge, straight, endless grey road, um, very flat dull scenery and of course it was winter no colour at all except for occasional very very bright bus stops I don't know why the Soviets had this reputation for very crazy bus stops um, something to do with their approach to public transport I suppose if you look at the, the metro in Moscow or in Kiev they tend to look very grand very decorative the same seems to apply to bus stops we used to be passed by bus stops which were painted um, in rainbow colours or sky blue or aquamarine they were lovely Very alien looking in this grey, empty, flat landscape. We suddenly saw this burst of colour. And as we zoomed past, thinking, what on earth is... Oh, it's a bus stop. (laughs) So maybe, I don't know, I don't know what the thinking is behind that. The Soviets wanted to glorify the workers by giving them a fancy means of getting to work. Maybe that's what it is. But for whatever reason, the bus stops on the road to Chernobyl were quite pretty. Now after two hours we reached the first checkpoint so we had to stop but we were made to wait for about 40 minutes. The guards didn't explain why but apparently that's quite standard so we got out of the car, we stretched our legs and then we drove on. Once we were inside the zone again more of that grey endless road and then finally Igor pulled over. I couldn't see why we were stopping. We were simply stopping in the middle of this grey road with trees on either side but Igor got us out of the car and we walked through the trees at the side of the road And then I realised we're not in the woods at all. We were in an abandoned village. One which, of course, was evacuated after the disaster. And having been left to nature, the trees had taken over. But it was soon obvious that the tiny path we were walking down through the trees wasn't actually a path. It was formerly the main street of this village. The village was called Zalisa. Now, it had been snowing, and so it looked as though we were walking through some lovely winter woodland scene. Something you'd see on a postcard. We crunched down the main street, now looking of course like an old woodland path, and then through the branches we started to see ruined cottages, broken windows, old shops with the roofs caved in. We saw an old red ladder in an abandoned garden, which Igor called a Soviet Ferrari. So this used to be the thriving village of Zalisa. And there are pictures of it on my website, juliemcdowell.com, if you want to see what it looks like now. So we kept walking down the old main street, and then a huge building appeared on the side of the road, and it looked very grand. It looked almost like a kind of southern plantation with white, tall white columns. Igor explained this was called the Palace of Culture, or what we'd probably call a community centre. Uh, Every Soviet village had one, um, 
Igor said, every sizable Soviet village. And it had, uh, as a community centre, it had a theatre, a library, a dance hall. Meetings would be held there. Igor said, of course, the main purpose of this was to spread Soviet propaganda, reinforce the communist ideology. And as he was telling us this, he kept scooping up snow and making snowballs and aiming them right at the part of the roof which had the Soviet hammer and sickle on it. So it's quite obvious what Igor's thoughts were about about that. Uh, We went inside the Palace of Culture. We had to be very careful. A lot of the floorboards were broken. Some were actually missing. Um, Those that still existed were very damp and very springy. So we tiptoed very carefully through the rooms in the Palace of Culture. And we ended up in the old theatre. And looking across uh, the broken floor... We saw the stage and across the top of the stage was a banner which Igor translated as saying communism is a bright future for all humanity. He also told us that after the village was evacuated uh, the liquidators, those men and women who were called in to help clear up after the disaster liquidators slept here on the floor of the Palace of Culture every night before going out to the plant in the morning. Of course the liquidators They were involved in all aspects of cleaning up after the disaster, not only tackling the plants, cleaning up all the radioactive debris, but they also helped evacuate and then bulldoze and bury a lot of the villages, especially on the the Belarusian side of the border. That's where most of the fallout, most of the radiation went after the disaster. Um, Belarus lost hundreds of villages. Some are simply empty and overgrown. Others have been literally buried underground because they were so contaminated. So we went back on the roads and arrived in Chernobyl town centre. Many people assume that Chernobyl town is abandoned, but it's not the case. Um, It's Pripyat, which is abandoned. People always picture Pripyat. That's the famous ghost town that we all know. Chernobyl itself still works. It still has people in it. It has a hotel, it has a cafe, it has shops and dormitories for the workers at the plant. So it still functions, albeit on a slow and glum and kind of scaled back manner. Uh, Those who work in the plant and sleep in the dormitories where food and accommodation is free, uh, they can only do so for several weeks at a time. Then they must take a break to avoid accumulating a damaging dose of radiation. Other workers at the plant who want a more permanent base, of course. They stay in the nearby town of Slavutic. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Sorry if I'm not. Um, Slavutic was built after the disaster to accommodate the permanent workers who were still needed to maintain the plant. Another thing people may not realise is that the Chernobyl plant continued functioning even after the disaster. Um, It was reactor number four which exploded, but reactors one, two and three variously kept um, working and producing electricity. So, of course, workers were still needed. And they either live at Slavutic, where they uh, commute each day by train into Chernobyl, or there are temporary workers who live in dormitories in Chernobyl town itself. So even though Chernobyl is still a working town, it feels very glum and empty and very subdued. It has the feel of a perpetual 1970s Sunday. Uh, We got out of the car and Igor showed us the robots... (laughs) which sounds strange, but yes, there is a display in Chernobyl Town Centre of various coloured, uh, colourful robots. 
and they were sent onto the roof of the Chernobyl plant after the disaster to clear it of radioactive debris. But that was the plan. In reality, the radiation frazzled their systems. The robots all ceased functioning. Um, According to Igor, one of them even threw itself off the roof. It went haywire and just charged towards the edge of the roof. He said it committed suicide, which is what it seems like, of course. So when the robots ceased functioning, when the conditions were too strong, too damaging... What did they do? Well, they sent in men. There was no other option. They sent in Soviets, uh, mainly reserves from the army, and they were given lead-lined aprons and caps to protect them, and they were sent onto the roof of the reactor. Their task was take a shovel and grab one or two um, shovelfuls of uh, radioactive debris and tip it into the reactor core, into the, the ruined part of the reactor. They had maybe 40 seconds up on the roof, and after that they had to run, That was all they could do, 40 seconds worth of work. Anything else would be deadly. So these men became known as the bio-robots, where the actual robots failed. These men were sent in instead. Absolutely, absolutely incredible bravery. So we looked at the the robot display, which um, looked a bit like a zoo. The robots had um, little signs next to them explaining what their names were, what they did. And, of course, they were behind a fence. It did feel that we were peering into a zoo, but it was a zoo of these radioactive robots. Uh, the town centre also had a huge wooden sculpture called Wormwood Star Memorial, which commemorates the disaster. And it's called Wormwood Star because the Book of Revelations in the Bible predicted a terrible disaster. It said um, a star called Wormwood would fall to the earth and poison all the water, making it bitter. And people took that to be a prophecy of what would happen at Chernobyl, because Chernobyl translates as wormwood. So some people say the Book of Revelations predicted the disaster. There's also another memorial which looks like a cemetery, which is what I thought it was. Rows and rows of, um, they look like crosses in the ground with names on them. I assumed it was a cemetery, but Igor said, no, no, each name on each white cross is the name of a village lost after the Chernobyl disaster. Villages which were either abandoned, evacuated, and then left to rot, such as Zelisa, which we walked along, or villages which were evacuated and then bulldozed and then buried under the earth because they were so contaminated. So hundreds of villages were lost, not only in Ukraine, but of course in Belarus too. And this memorial, which looks like a cemetery, commemorates them. Now, after the long journey and after exploring Zalisa and the town centre, it was time for lunch. Now, the idea of lunch sounded very strange because, as I said at the beginning, I didn't didn't want to feel like a tourist, like I was there to gop and take pictures, even though I was gopping and taking pictures. But um, Igor said, let's go for lunch, and lunch had been laid on for us. It was apparently part of the fee that we'd paid. So we went to the only cafe in town, Cafe Desiatka, there is, sorry, there is one other cafe in Chernobyl, but that's the Workers' Canteen, where apparently you can also be accommodated. But um, from what I've read, that seems a bit inhospitable because you have to go through a radiation sensor uh, before you go in and when you leave. That might set off a bit of indigestion in some people. So we went instead to Cafe de Siatka. Uh, that's open to everyone. The plant workers can go there if they like for their lunches and dinners, but they'd have to pay Whereas if they go to the plant canteen, it's free. So really, from what I heard, Café de Siatka is mainly for tourists. 
or plant workers if they want to have a bit of a change. You can also get a few beers there. So we went to Café de Siatka. We were the only people there when we arrived and our table had been set for us. They knew we were coming, of course. No one smiled, um, but I, I didn't take that personally. From what I've read and from what other people have said, um, the concept of customer service that we have in the West where everyone's cheery and, hi, have a nice day, all of that, that doesn't exist in Ukraine which takes a bit of getting used to, but there's nothing wrong with it, of course. You might say that the the have a nice day culture that we have over here is a bit false, a bit irritating. So the waiter and waitresses didn't smile at us at all, but we didn't take that personally. That's just different culture, of course, and that's absolutely fine. Now, Café de Siatka opened in 2013 to meet the demands of ever-increasing tourism into the exclusion zone. In the Soviet era, it was a state cafeteria called Canteen Number 10, but there's no um, Soviet severity lingering there. Um, there's a tiny gift shop in the in the hallway which sells Chernobyl badges and mugs. Um, there was even a vending machine which dispensed T-shirts rolled up in cardboard tubes. Um, all the money from that um, went to supporting the resettlers. Those are the old folk who refused to be evacuated after the disaster. Of course, they were all forcibly evacuated, but some people said uh, we're going home we're sim- we're going home and no one's stopping us and so they cut their way through the wire they went back to their homes the authorities kept trying to chase them out but they kept coming back which is admirable some might say it's foolish but they said no this is our home this has been our home all throughout you know generations of our family we we beat the nazis here we're not going to be chased out by yet another horror we're staying put And according to a book that I read recently called Fallout by Fred Pierce, I reviewed it in The Economist uh, just last week. You can see the link on my website if you want. Um, He went to visit some resettlers who are now, of course, elderly people. And he said the ones who are there, are they tend to be thriving. They're perfectly healthy. They eat fish from the river. They grow their own food in the radioactive soil. They seem perfectly ruddy and strong and happy. And they tell tales of their friends and neighbours who were a bit more meek and obedient and who put up with the evacuation and who allowed themselves to be dispersed into flats all across Ukraine and who became isolated, who became homesick, who became cut off from friends and family, who live on a unhealthy diet of city food or junk food. They tend to be the ones who have died or who die earlier, whereas the ones who are back in this irradiated zone they seem to be thriving so yeah no soviet severity um we've got a gift shop we've got a few beers on tap if we want it and uh, when we were in the cafe there was a big tv on the wall which was playing lethal weapon although lethal weapon of course dubbed into ukrainian so even though no one was giving us a smile and a hi how are you have a nice day all that cheery western nonsense even though there was none of that the cafe still seemed quite um, quite warm and welcoming and we had a nice meal. We had a borscht to begin with, which is um kind of red beetrooty soup. And then we had some pork chops with potatoes. So perfectly nice meal. It just felt strange to be tucking into a nice meal in Chernobyl. It felt strange to be in a cafe watching Lethal Weapon in Chernobyl. It felt strange to see a gift shop selling badges and mugs in Chernobyl. But then life goes on, as those resettlers show her back at home, growing their vegetables, tending to their gardens. Life goes on. 
Now, I've told you that I was trying to be um, dignified and respectful throughout my trip. Um, that extended to my meal. Um, I'm quite fussy with food. I haven't ever eaten a banana or a peach. Um, I didn't even eat an egg until I was 21. I don't know why, I just didn't. Very fussy with food. Um, so, obviously I was hoping that they they wouldn't serve me anything strange because, you know, I've not even had a banana for God's sake. Never mind exotic Ukrainian fare. But everything looked perfectly normal to someone who's got a, a dull, boring British appetite like me. So when the borscht was put down on the table, I thought, brilliant, I know what this is. This is just soup, really. And I picked up a roll and I dunked it in the nice, ready, oily borscht. And I bit into it. And then I thought, oh, God, what have I done? Because the roll was filled with a warm apricot jam. So it seemed that re- these rolls had been put there maybe f- maybe for pudding or to have with coffee at the end. And instead I just grabbed it and dunked it into the borscht and chowed down. So I found myself out of politeness, you know, desperate to be respectful and nice. I had to swallow this warm, fruity, jammy gloop, which was mixed in with the beetroot and the soup. So that's what trying to be respectful and dignified gets you. So after lunch, we went to the Chernobyl plant itself and we actually stood directly beside it, which surprised me. I thought we'd be kept at a distance, but no, we were right up beside the gates. And again, it's not a monstrous, silent place, but it's a working plant. There were men in hard hats and high-vis jackets bustling around and I was just outside the fence, just again, gawping at them. Um, The effect of the radiation was very noticeable here. Um, Outside the gates of the plant, there is a a monument to the liquidators and Igor told us to stand directly behind the monument. When we did that, our Geiger counters were very quiet. But when we took one step to the left and came out from the protection of the stone and stood right in front of the plant, the Geiger counter immediately began furiously clicking. So that showed us that the stone was sheltering us from all the radiation which is still being belched out of the plant. Our Geiger counters also went crazy when we drove towards Pripyat because this took us across what was formerly a patch of Scots pine trees and on the night of the disaster the radiation went right across those trees and turned them a sickly brown copper colour. It became nicknamed the Red Forest and every tree there had to be cut down and buried because they were so hideously contaminated So we drove directly across the Red Forest very quickly and with the windows up and our Geiger counters again started screaming. The radiation there is still incredibly powerful. So after a short drive, we arrived at Pripyat, which is the famous empty ghost town everyone thinks of when you think of Chernobyl. It was guarded by another checkpoint and there was a very tired and bored-looking man standing by the barrier he had a porta cabin, um, there was a radio playing, and he had a cat and a dog with him for company. Uh, he looked bored, but of course he would be. Um, on that day, as I said, David and I were the only visitors, so of course he's bored, but he's there to make sure no illegal people try to sneak into Pripyat. Um, the dog was certainly pleased to see us. The dog, it was a lovely wee thing. It looked a bit like a, a corgi, a really fluffy corgi. It was jumping all over us, asking to be patted. Uh, the guards. He just shook his head and looked at the dog and said, crazy dog. So 
he allowed us into Pripyat. By now it was about half past three. And remember, it's a December afternoon, so it was starting to get a bit gloomy. And David, Igor and I were the only people there, of course. So yes, it was a bit spooky. Um, we walked along the old Main Street, uh, Lenin Street, once very smart and tree-lined and now totally wild and overgrown, trees all ragged and spindly and weeds pushing up through the pavements. We went to the frozen Pripyat River. We saw abandoned cafes, abandoned swimming pool, community centre, kindergarten. Then we walked through another patch of woods, which of course isn't woods, just an ordinary path now taken over by nature. And we came out into a wide open area, and that was the famous playground with its rusty bumper cars and the famous ferris wheel. Its cabins are still bright yellow and it's uh, they were just gently creaking in the icy wind. Now before I go on to talk about the impact of Chernobyl on the Soviet Union and why people argue that it helped bring down the USSR, I'll answer two questions from uh, listeners on Twitter and Facebook. I'd asked for anyone to... Um, throw any questions at me. The first is from Liam and he asked about the health effects on the first responders to the disaster and by that I assume we're talking about the firemen. Well they suffered terribly because they ran to the fire with no radiation protection. Uh, There's a new book out called Chernobyl History of a Tragedy by Sergei Plokey. I reviewed his book in the Times last month. You can find the review on my website and in his book he stresses that people were taught, uh, people in the Soviet Union were taught that Soviet reactors were totally safe. Um, it was argued they were so safe you could even build one on Red Square. And so when Chernobyl reactor number four exploded, no one could comprehend initially what had happened. So the firemen thought they were just attending a conventional fire. The book also stresses that when the disaster happened, some of the men who were working in the plant, when they heard the explosion, someone, some of them even thought, oh God, that's nuclear war. War has finally broken out. The prospect of a nuclear war was more plausible to them than the fact that their reactor could explode. So that's the kind of straitjacket thinking that the firemen were dealing with. No, 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 the reactor cannot explode. So the men were running into the unknown. They were totally unprepared because of this ridiculous ideology which insisted Soviet reactors cannot explode. So the firemen were uh, tackling the fire and after a few hours, this book says their skin began to darken with what the book called a nuclear tan. And then, of course, the radiation sickness began to manifest itself. One of the firemen came down from the roof of the reactor and uh, told the boss... Something is making my boys feel a bit sick. And another man emerged from the plant. Uh, He was stumbling and slurring his words because he was so sick with radiation. But the doctor simply thought he'd been drinking. It didn't occur to these people, these men in charge, these people who had been drilled by Soviet ideology, it didn't occur to them that the plant had exploded and radiation was being belched out into the atmosphere. So soon the firemen began to collapse or to vomit and they were taken into Pripyat to the hospital. And it was only later, it, when it became obvious that they were dealing with radiation sickness, that they were taken out of uh, Pripyat. They were bundled onto buses, still in their pyjamas, and driven into Kiev, where they were then flown to Moscow. Uh, and on the runway at Moscow, they were put into ambulances, which had 
special plastic sheeting coating the uh, the insides and they were taken to a specialist hospital and of course many of them died terrible deaths in Moscow in that hospital. I'll read you an extract here from the book Chernobyl Prayer by Svetlana Alexievich. Uh, this is an oral history of the disaster uh, and a fireman's widow describes what the radiation did to her beloved husband. It's absolutely horrifying and heartbreaking. The skin on his arms and legs was cracking. His whole body was coming up in blisters. When he turned his head, clumps of hair were left on the pillow. But he was still my love, my precious one. I tried joking. It'll make life easier. You won't need to carry a comb. Soon they all had their hair cut off. I cut his hair myself. I wanted to do everything myself. If I could have coped physically, I'd have been with him 24 hours a day. I felt sorry for every minute away from him. Every minute. My brother arrived and he was scared for me. I won't let you go in there. But Dad says to him, You reckon you'll stop her? She'll climb through the window, up the fire escape. They were always giving him injections to sleep, giving him drugs. The nurse looked at me in horror. And me... I was ready to do anything just to stop him thinking about death, stop him thinking his illness was horrid and that I was scared of him. There's one conversation I remember. Someone was pressuring me. You mustn't forget this isn't your husband. It isn't the man you love. It's a highly contaminated radioactive object. You're not a suicide case, so pull yourself together. But I was like a crazy woman. I love him, I love him. While he was asleep, I whispered, I love you. Walking about the hospital courtyard, I love you. Carrying the bedpan, I love you. I thought back to our life together in the hostel. He could only fall asleep at night holding my hand. It was his habit. He used to hold my hand while he slept the whole night long. And in the hospital, I used to hold his hand and wouldn't let go. Um, Out of respect, of course, let me name this, this lady. Her name is Ludmila Ignatenko. And she is the wife of Vasily Ignatenko, one of the firemen. Of course, um, he dies of his of his radiation sickness. And this is a description of what his body looked like um, at his death. She describes seeing his body before they bury him. This time there was no dragging me away. I stayed with him right to the grave. Though I can't remember the coffin, just a big plastic sack. That sack. In the mortuary they asked... Do you want to see what he'll be wearing? Yes. They put him in his dress uniform with the service cap on his chest. They didn't pick any shoes out because his feet were too swollen. He had balloons for legs. He had to slit the dress uniform too. They couldn't pull it on his mess of a body. All just one gory wound. The last two days at the hospital, I'd lift his arm and the bone would be all wobbly, hanging loose, the tissue falling away from it. Pieces of lung, lumps of his liver were coming up through his mouth. He was choking on his own innards. I'd put a bandage on my hand and slip it into his mouth, scoop it all out. You can't describe it, there are no words. It was too much to take. This was my sweetheart, my love. Not one pair of shoes would fit him. They put him in the coffin barefoot. And um, that brings me to the second question. Um, Gerard had asked on Twitter... What I think of the book Chernobyl Prayer. Well, that's the book I've just quoted from. Um, I think it's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. It's probably the most powerful book in terms of emotional impact and the memory it's left with me. 
it's probably <laughs> you'll understand what I mean when I say it. it's probably the literary equivalent of threads threads stayed with me forever and I think this book is the same I will never be able to forget this book so let's turn to the next part of the podcast let's look at how Chernobyl contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union now the best source for this the recent book called uh, Chernobyl History of a Tragedy by Seri Ploki which I reviewed in the Times um, he argues that the disaster invigorated or or reinvigorated uh, calls for independence in Ukraine uh, by giving them an extra cause, which was what he calls eco-nationalism. Their nationalism was now driven by the desire to be rid of these nuclear plants, which were perceived as being Russian. Uh, He calls it Russia's nuclear imperialism. Um, People who were calling for Ukraine to be independent and who were taking up the eco-nationalist cause, they were asking why... Why was this deadly and faulty reactor placed right in Ukraine's heart, uh, near its capital, um, near the the meeting of three major rivers? Why have millions of people, millions of Ukrainians suffered because of this Russian nuclear plant? I suppose it was very easy to pair the reactor with Russia. And so eco-nationalism and the horror of Chernobyl uh, invigorated the Ukrainian uh, calls for independence. We also know that the Soviet Union were very slow to respond. The Soviet leadership were very slow to respond to this. It took days before they would even admit there had been a disaster in Chernobyl. Um, In fact, it was uh, Sweden who first broke the news. One of their plants had picked up huge levels of radiation and they managed to track it back to Ukraine and to the Chernobyl plant. So it was the Swedes who said there's something going on here. It wasn't the Soviet uh, government. They were very reluctant to admit what had happened. And so, of course, the frightened population were desperate for answers. And when their own leadership uh, weren't providing them, they began looking to Western media. Um, Lots of other people sought comfort in the church, uh, turning away from communist ideology and back to religion. Indeed, um, Sergei Ploki in this book says, quote, the power of communist ideology was dissolving under the influence of the radiation in Chernobyl. Okay, so this uh, was an extended episode. We've covered a lot here. So if you've got any questions about Chernobyl, just get in touch with me through Twitter at Julie A. McDevil or through my Facebook page, which is Nuclear Britain, or through my website at juliemcdevil.com. I did this extended episode, as I said, as a gesture of thanks to the people who've signed up to my Patreon account. Uh, let me give those people a shout out. I said I would um, do that as a, as a thank you if they signed up. So at the time of recording this, which is on Sunday morning, I've got 18 generous people who are pledging some money to the podcast, supporting my work. And those cool people are Peter Mars, Gordy McNair, Russell Phillips, Paul Jonathan Viner, Peter Lee, Claire Brennan, Damian Ryan, Angus McClellan, Brian Outlaw, Kieran Taylor, Sean Milson, Liam Kennelly, Steve Sace, Phil Catling, Colin McGee, Mary Freer, Sarah Williams and Stephen Cardy. Thank you every single person who's pledged some money towards the podcast. If you want to sign up um, and you can get rewards like a shout out on here. You can get um, postcards from my trips, my nuclear visits, my research trips. You'll be able to nominate a podcast episode. You know, you can tell me what subject you want me to cover. And as long as it's feasible, then I'll do it. That will be giving them a special extended episode also. 
uh, and you can get a thank you in the acknowledgement section of my book. You can even get a free signed copy of my book. Now, if you sign up to that level of pledge, that gives me a bloody great um, motivation to get the thing finished. <laughs> but um, even if you don't sign up, the podcast is always going to be free. It's always going to be here for you, free of any stupid, annoying adverts, etc., um, but by supporting it, you let me devote more time to it. You let me do more research on it, uh, bring you more detailed and extended episodes like this one. Let me visit more nuclear sites, um, maybe even pay for a better jingle than the one I've got just now, which David tells me sounds like I'm about to read the news. So thank you to everyone who's supporting it. Um, if you want to sign up to Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. But you can also support me by sharing this on social media or telling your friends about it. Word of mouth um, is certainly really important. That's how I've discovered quite a lot of cool podcasts. So that's us for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this extended episode. If I've rambled on, tell me. If you want to see more of them, tell me. And by all means, chuck in some money to support these. Okay, so that's all for this week. Thank you again for listening. Thank you to all my patrons, my 18 of you, every single one of you, thank you sincerely for supporting my nuclear work and I'll be back again next Sunday with another podcast.